Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, January 28th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, January 30th, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-host Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Just, you know, getting ready for this storm. It's supposed to be like a nor'easter over here. Oh, gosh. I hope you're all stocked up and, and ready to go for that. I am. Like, I'm I'm staying put. I'm not moving. I got enough water and food and all that. So hopefully it'll pass by without too much of, an, of like, you know, damage or whatever. But they're saying it's going to be like a blizzard. So and hopefully the weather's good over there in Spain with Emily. So on the docket for today's episode... For our local news segment, we have a continuation of our partnership with NYU Langone, and Emily will be interviewing Dr. Graham Dove concerning noise pollution in New York City. For national news, we have a story about a Tennessee school district that is banning a graphic novel about the Holocaust. For our world news story, we have a story about an Indian family that froze to death trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border. And for good news, we have a heartwarming story about an 11-year-old boy who donated some funds he won from a contest to some foster children. So we'll go ahead and kick off today's episode with our interview. Emily, take it away. Hello, I'm Emily Scott, and I'm so excited to have Graham Dove, PhD, on as our guest today. He is a research assistant professor at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering And this interview was brought about through the partnership between Radio Free Brooklyn and the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, CIEH Center, and the Department of Environmental Medicine. And special thanks to Judy Zelikoff from the NYU Department of Environmental Medicine, who helped us to develop this partnership. Thank you for being here, Graham. Uh, Thank you, Emily. Yeah. Uh, So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, and the type of work you do at NYU. I'm a human-computer interaction design researcher, so that means what I focus on is um, the way that people use computers. Uh, And typically, historically, that would have been how people use, you know, desktop and laptop computers. But but nowadays, um, it means anything, really, because uh, a computer is in a phone, a computer is in any kind of wearable device or or sensor that you use. And so the kind of things that I look at have, have really broadened out into into a much more um, a much more environmental kind of context, hence why um, I've been working with uh, people in the School of Medicine, particularly in the school, um, particularly to do with environmental factors. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I know that the main topic Judy brought you on to talk about is actually noise pollution. That's one of the main That's correct. things yes. that you study. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so why is it important to study noise pollution? So noise pollution is a quality of life um factor that that impacts people's health um and so kind of a, just a, a couple of overview stats i guess really is kind of interesting here so it's estimated that roughly around 70 million people in um the urban us um are exposed to noise levels that are above what the uh, environmental protection agency the epa um consider harmful um, uh, and so this causes stress, which leads to sleep disruption, 
um, and cognitive impairment in children so they can have difficulty um, concentrating or, or learning in class, um, all the way up to hypertension, heart disease um, and, and hearing loss. Um, and, and then I guess just from the kind of quality of life impact, if, if we look at, at New York and, and we look at the, the classic way of recording kind of quality of life issues, which is via the 311 service, um, then, you know, noise issues um, from 2014 were roughly 338,000 calls. By 2018, that had gone up to kind of 438,000 calls. Wow. Um, and it's been going up ever since. Um, and the last kind of couple of years, crazy for everybody, but everybody's been spending much more time inside. Uh, and I think as far as I understand it, those numbers have just skyrocketed even further. Wow. Uh, that's pretty wild. And um, another note is well related to, you know, this concept of studying noise pollution. So when we spoke last time, um, I'm going to read my notes here, uh, may or may not be verbatim, but you told me that the one thing you've come to understand about noise pollution is that it's very much a symptom of other issues. Uh, there's a framework to complain about it, as you mentioned, 311, but it also reflects much more deep-seated and complicated issues than what first appears. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me give a couple examples from the kind of work we do. So a lot of what we've been looking at is focused on construction. Um, and there's no route to just complain about construction. Um, and construction has all sorts of, uh, of impacts um, noise being one one of the chief ones, and and one that that through the three one one system and through the uh, Department of Buildings and Department of Environmental Protection, there's a route to to make a complaint. Um, and noise may reflect disturbance in this sense. So it's it's not simply that it's a loud noise happening all the time and that that noise um, is causing immediate kind of health harm. Um, but think of a situation where uh, work carries on uh, in the street, digging up, uh, digging up for utilities or, or other kind, you know, other forms of, of street work. Um, and there's a jackhammer that goes off at uh, 11 p.m. because um, the Department of Transportation don't want to close down the street to traffic during uh, daytimes um, because their priority is to keep traffic moving. Um, now, noise there is a symptom of much wider considerations. So is it right that the DOT should prioritise um, car traffic uh, over residents living in, in, in the local neighbourhood? Um, for, for, for one example. Um, and then similarly, another example, um, one we've been less involved in, but one which is very common uh, in, the, in the reports to 311 is uh, music that, or sorry, sounds that come from bars or the, the overflow of bars, uh, restaurants, clubs, etc. Um, and typically actually 
it's not actually music that causes this, but it's the noise of people leaving to get into uh, Uber or Lyft uh, or to try and find a taxi. So it's people shouting at each other up and down the street to coordinate as they're going from from one place or another. Um, so in this instance, uh, the noise is, is a symptom of changes in the way people arrange transportation, um, changes in in what an, a neighbourhood might be used for. So, you know, the, 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 the fact that, that suddenly somewhere has a lot of bars and restaurants in close proximity, um, because of that have uh, a lot of uh, traffic caused by... Um, by people coming into that neighbourhood in order to enjoy themselves, but then leaving to go back to other neighbourhoods. Hmm. That's super interesting, Graham. Thank you so much. Uh, and one thing you mentioned also in that discussion a bit about the public health consequences of noise pollution was stress. And I also remember from our previous uh, discussion how when it comes to noise pollution, it's rarely, or when it comes to noise pollution causing enough stress for someone to call 311, for example, it's not necessarily a constant stream of noise. It's that it, part of it is that you don't know when the next, the next burst is going to come. So you start to relax and then you tense up because there it is again. And I just, I personally can relate. I don't know if there's more to elaborate on with that, but I thought that was very interesting. That, uh, that's a very good description, and and it oh. really is the case. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it 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 really is the case that uh, um, you know it's it's noise itself is very transitory, um, but it's also when it's loud, as you say, it's it's very shocking, um, and will often come at, at times. The, the I mean, I guess the easiest way to say is that is the times that you're not expecting it. You know, you you, you don't expect that jackhammer to start up um, at, at 11 p.m. Um, or you don't expect once it's stopped for 30 minutes for it to suddenly kick in again at 12:30 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these these things, these the the, the sounds, particularly. Uh, at night when when otherwise things are typically much quieter um sounds can really travel and can really kind of pierce through where you are and if you're if you're trying to relax or if you're trying to sleep um imagine uh, a 30 second sound uh, that actually keeps you awake for another two hours mm-hmm. so while while the sound itself the noise itself might be very transitory um, it can have a very serious impact on on your ability to rest, to um, to, to sleep, and, and to catch up on what you need in in order to get through um, a day which is full of noise. Because because we live in, in in the city, and cities are very noisy, mm-hmm. uh, and you kind of get used to coping with the noise when you when you're going about your daily business and, and you're outside, you know, traffic, subways. Um, whatever construction even when you're when you're walking past okay it's noisy when you're trying to sleep uh that has a really serious kind of impact um, and can be long lasting when it's when it's repeated mm-hmm. yeah and, and again as someone with a, a not necessarily short history of insomnia i i can definitely relate to to that particular one uh and it's interesting to talk about on that level uh, but yeah, so I know that you also do work directly with um, 
New Yorkers and directly with different communities in in New York. Uh, would you talk a little bit about that direct work you're doing? Yeah, sure. Let me give you maybe three good examples. Um, they kind of cover different things. So starting in, actually, I'll, I'll start down in, in Chinatown, um, where we have been working with uh, a senior housing project uh, that backs onto the Manhattan jail. Um, now, as uh, people may well be aware, the, the Manhattan jail is in the process of being knocked down and reconstructed um, as part of the planned closure of Rikers Island. Um, but the senior housing literally shares a wall um, with with the jail. Uh, and that jail is built out of bomb-proofed, reinforced concrete. Um, so the noise that's going to be made, the disruption that's going to be made from bringing that down and from building up um, a whole new prison is is going to be extremely severe. So we've been uh, helping by starting to take some background um, some 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 background measures to to understand what is what it, the noise is typically like, um, uh, and we will be monitoring the project um, as it goes as it goes on. Um, and a second example, um, another construction example, is working with uh, a group of residents who live around Thirty Fourth Street and Tenth Avenue in Manhattan, so very close to where Hudson Yards has been being built. And Hudson Yards has been the biggest construction or biggest private construction project uh, ever in the country. It's been going on for, I think it's pushing close to eight years now. Um, and it's been had work that's gone through day, night, um, obviously with something that, that is that economically important. Um, they have been pushing to work all sorts of hours. Now that's been super disruptive. So, uh, we, we've had a long history of trying to, to help uh, this particular community. Uh, and more recently, we did, we did, we have been doing some monitoring um, down there. And we've been helping to provide um, some data to show that particularly kind of the street construction work is, can, be, can be really disruptive. And this is, this is kind of a lot of where the examples I was talking about earlier from intermittent very loud, intermittent noise that disrupts a whole night's sleep. Um, so that's been going on for a long time for, for these folks. And then as a third example, one that's slightly different um, and one that's kind of come out of, well, primarily kind of came out of uh, lockdown and pandemic um, issues was up in uh, Washington Heights um, and Inwood um, where there's been a lot of noise um, that is associated with, uh, particularly with dirt bikes um, and with uh, ATVs, all-terrain vehicles, um, uh, or with um, music from cars and parties that were happening um, in in the streets. Now, these are kind of super complex um, issues, mm-hmm. um, and, and ones that we, we've been talking with. Uh, community members trying to collect uh, some perhaps more objective data about when, how, 
how severe the, the impacts of these are in order to work with the community board um, to try and come up with uh, some some solutions. Um, and I have to say, actually, the good thing about that is as touch wood, as we, I hate to say this now thinking about it, Omicron and all the rest of it, but as mm-hmm. in theory we begin to come out of the pandemic, um, some of these issues have, have calmed down for them, which I, which I hope is a good thing. Hmm. That's very interesting. And and so when you are working with a community with those really complicated interpersonal issues, um, are are you sort of an objective data collector? Like, do they come to you with an issue and you and you just provide the data that kind of helps them bring that issue to like a legislative level? Is that what's happening? So, I think in an ideal world, uh, uh, as an academic, you you start by trying to think that you're um, an objective data collector, uh, and our primary role mm-hmm. in all of these is is in collecting data um and then helping present that data to uh in this case i think in in the in the in the washington heights case it would be the community board um with uh, the hudson yards case it has been a much broader set of agencies um that we've provided data to yeah i think um it's it's hard to say to stay completely objective, you become uh, involved in in all of these projects and and with people in all of these um, communities. But mm-hmm. but one thing that that we do that we are able to do is help them interpret what the data shows in terms of things like the noise code, the the NYC noise code, um, which is the kind of statutory regulation uh, that that. Agencies like the Department of Environmental uh, Protection or, or or groups like the Community Board will actually be able to act on. Um, and so sometimes things that are very disturbing actually kind of fall under the limits um, of, of what could be responded to in 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 terms of the noise code. Um, and so then, for example, what we might try and do is, is help them build up uh, uh, a picture of, of that impact over time so that each individual instance uh, may not breach the code, um, but actually you're showing a kind of pattern of disturbance. Mm. Thank you so much for uh, elaborating on that. And and how did you get connected to these specific communities? Did they come to you directly for help? So... Taking them in turn as we as I kind of ran through them. So in in Chinatown, we were approached um, by the Center for the Study of Asian American Health, um, who uh, which is a, a unit in um, the Grossman School of Medicine, um, and is actually the connection between myself and uh, Judith, um, and uh-huh. and so. We were approached. We were approached in an event that we were we were speaking at, um, and then that started a partnership that is that is leading on to um, other collaborations. Um, and and so that was kind of opportunity opportunistic through something called um, Town and Gown, which is a um, an NYC initiative to link uh, academic partners with uh, city agencies. 
Um, so then in terms of the Hudson Yards uh, people, we were, or oh, the Hudson Yards community rather, we were approached by the Mayor's Office of Community Affairs because the residents had had finally got the, the, the community affairs agency to sit in and bring all the different um, municipal agencies, the DOT, the DEP, the DOB, sorry, the Department of Building, the Department of Environmental Protection and the Department of Transportation um, together around a table along with their community board um, in order to negotiate some parameters um, for continuing the construction work. And so we we had a kind of long relationship um, built up around uh, this initial interaction with the depart- uh, with the mayor's office of community affairs, um, and then the group in Washington Heights and inwards, yeah, approached us directly. Um, they they came across us from um, I believe just from from online searching or from uh, some some media like we're doing here mm-hmm. um uh, and then they reached out and uh we 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 met from there very cool very cool uh i i also want to ask i don't know much about you know collecting data when it comes to noise pollution would you talk like briefly about like how you scientifically go about measuring noise Briefly, I, sure. we don't. Hear, it's not a science <laughs> show, but <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll keep the technical details. Um, Thank you. Actually, I'll keep, the te- I'll, I'll keep the technical details for people that really understand the technical yes. details, um, which is probably not myself in in, in this project. <laughs> oh. um, uh, but 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 I can I, I I can talk a little. So we have been, or my project partners have been developing um, noise monitoring sensors, uh, and the simplest way to describe these is a digital microphone so kind of similar to the thing that you'd have in your cell phone um, and a single board computer in this case uh, a raspberry pi Um, now i guess school kids are relatively familiar with these they get used a lot in education Um, they're cheap they're like a 30 dollar simple computer Um, we connect the two we put them in a case um, we then go through uh, a lot of testing um, and a lot of, a lot of calibration in high-tech noise reducing environments um, in order to make sure that they are accurate and comparable with the kind of technology that the city uses to measure noise. Um, and then they can be deployed for, well, so that we, we, we had two two iterations. The first iteration, which was designed to be um, mounted on street poles and on the outside of, really on the outside of kind of university and any other um, buildings, administrative buildings. Um, and these, we've had some sitting up for... Mm, coming on to four years now. Um, so they are long-term deployments. Um, but more recently and more community focus, we developed uh, a new version of this sensor, which sits on the outside of uh, a resident's window um, to minimize any noise that might be picked up from inside. Uh, and this uses the technology to uh, capture very brief 10-second 
um, samples of audio. It also samples the sound pressure level, um, which is a, uh, a measure uh, that you might be familiar with because it is the decibel meter. Um, so mm. uh, if you're familiar with decibels, that's a measure of sound pressure level. Um, so we record that. And um, these typically we are looking at maybe two, three week deployments. Um, uh, and these can be sent out to, to different residents for, for different problem situations. Awesome. Awesome, Graham. Thank you so much. So if there are any listeners out there that are dealing with their own you know, noise pollution issues, uh, how is there anything you would recommend for them to try and resolve those issues or is, is 311 really their best bet? So I think that the, the my, I won't say recommendation, but, but my experience mm-hmm. leads me to think that through the combination of 311 and your local community board, I think the local community board can be very helpful. 311, the, the Department of Environmental Protection, um, will typically be very responsive to that. Um, I think one of the challenges with reporting noise to 311 is some noise will go to the Department of Environmental Protection, some noise will go to the NYPD. Um, Mm, mm -hmm. And I think the NYPD often have priorities other than noise. Um, The the DEP will be much more responsive. So, yeah, but I think that 311 is, is... the first port of call, I think, in in general, it can be quite effective. Um, and I think if it is persistent noise from what you might consider a more commercial activity, then I think the community board uh, is also a very good place to start. All right, Graham. Well, thank you so much for being here. Again, this has been Graham Dove, PhD, uh, a research assistant professor at the Tandon at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering. Uh, thank you. It has been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you, Emily. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Awesome. Thank you so much for that interview, um, Emily. And also thank you, Dr. Dove, for that information. We're going to go ahead and take our first music break. This track is called Notre Dame, and it's by Anomaly. We'll be right back. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. 
We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Next up, we have Jasmine with our national news story. This information comes from NPR. The title of the article is A Tennessee School District Has Voted to Ban the Holocaust Graphic Novel Mouse, uh, spelled M-A-U-S. A Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel about the Holocaust has been banned by a Tennessee school district, prompting blowback from critics who say it's essential to teach children about the genocide. The 10-member McKinn County School Board voted unanimously earlier this month to remove Mouse from its curriculum and replace it with an alternative, which hadn't yet been decided at the time of the vote. We are here because some people objected to the words and the graphics used in the book, board member Rob Shamblin said during the meeting, according to the minutes posted on the school board's website. News of the January 10th meeting trickled out this week as the world was preparing to mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is the anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp in 1945. Uh, so that was at, that was yesterday, January 27th, was Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, if you were not aware. Mouse has played a vital role in educating about the Holocaust through sharing detailed and personal experiences of victims and survivors, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum said in a series of tweets. Teaching about the Holocaust using books like Mouse can inspire students to think critically about the past and their own roles and responsibilities today. Mouse tells the story of author Art Spiegelman's relationship with his father, a Holocaust survivor, and it depicts Jews as mice and Nazis as cats. Spiegelman said this week that the school board seemed to have a myopic focus on potentially offensive words and limited nudity in the book and that the decision smacked of something more sinister. It has the breath of autocracy and fascism about it, Spiegelman said on CNN. I think of it as a harbinger of things to come. The board said students should learn about the Holocaust, but Mouse was the wrong book. At issue are eight curse words and an image of a nude woman, according to McMinn County Schools director Lee Parkinson. The board discussed censoring the language and Im imagery it deemed inappropriate, but ultimately decided to discard the novel outright. Jonathan Pierce, the board member who initiated the vote to remove Mouse from the eighth grade curriculum, said during the meeting that the Holocaust should be taught in schools, but this was not the book to do it. There's been growing momentum recently among some Republican leaders to ban certain books in schools, particularly those dealing with issues of race and LGBTQ identity. According to the American Library Association, the number of attempts to ban school library books was 60% higher last September than in the same month the year before. Um, so yeah, also I just, I wanted to mention if you have not read Mouse, you can access it for free. There's two volumes. If you go to archive.org, that's A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot O-R-G, uh, which is a great, um, the Internet Archive is a great uh, resource for finding um, books that you can borrow digitally. 
uh, as long as you create a free account. So if you have not read it, like I strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of art and it not only teaches you a lot about um, the Holocaust, you know, from a survivor's point of view, it's also a very powerful story about like having a strained relationship with a parent, um, losing a parent unexpectedly and being, you know, dealing with your feelings about that. So yeah, this, um, it's not great to hear about stuff like this. Wow. I thought the statistic about how the number of books that have been um, banned or that whole thing has changed so much in one year really tells the dynamic about what's happened in this country. But this is, you know, I haven't read the book. Um, I would be interested in finding, you know, finding more, reading it and seeing, you know, how the story is told. But that's that's really interesting. You've read the book, Jasmine? Yeah, I read um it it was serialized when it was originally released cuz it's a graphic novel so sort of like what you would think of as a comic book. But okay. it's been compiled since then and it's in two volumes. Um and you I've read the whole thing. Like I was working an overnight shift in a library and I had seen the cover before but I hadn't read it. So I just was reading it, you know, while I was working and you know, personally, I think especially for young people, a graphic novel is a really great medium for them to understand because it's written yeah. in a way that's like conversational. It's like he's right. talking to his dad. The dad is explaining his memories. And the fact that, you know, each uh, like ethnicity or each group in the book is represented by a different type of animal. Like, I think that makes it ideal, like for a young person, like even if you understand, don't understand yeah. all the words or, you know, deep, confusing, like, concepts or something, like, you can understand the gist of what's going on, and, like, of course, you can always go back to something, like, later on and get something different out of it. Um, yeah. And, like, the objections that they're talking about, they just, you know, as someone who has read it, it does not make sense. You know, like, there's a few images that depict, you know, people being stripped before they went into you know, to be exterminated. And that's part of history. That's what happened. Yeah. You know, but it's not like, it's is. not even like it's a photo. Like these are, you know, small, like comic book images of what would be like a mouse that had to take its clothes off. Like, it's not like you're looking at something pornographic or, right. you know, it's just like they're making up things at this point. Wow. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's sad when you see things like this happen because it's hard enough to get people to pay attention to history I think the younger generation for lack of you know better a, a better way to say this they don't really value history as much as I think our generation has and finding ways to disseminate information to them can be challenging especially in a way that they can understand and will get what you're trying to give them you know so this is uh interesting that this is this is happening here did you have any books when you were in middle school, high school that stood out to you that you feel like, you know, taught you something about history or? Um, probably Miss Jane Pittman was the most, mm -hmm. probably the most uh, significant one for me. I remember, you know, we definitely had to read it before we seen the film. And it mm -hmm. definitely kind of painted a picture of, you know, a past that I didn't really know about, but my family is from the Deep South. 
And my father was, you know, an older man. So my sisters and brothers would tell me a little bit about the past and things like that. But that was probably the one that made me question a lot and, you know, made me want to dig deeper. Um, It wasn't the most painful book, but, you know, the concept of it and everything stuck with me. And I remember um, reading that. But I also went to a performing arts school. So there was a lot more like art based uh, ways of doing history, you know, through plays and, you know, different, um, different, like through music and stuff like that. So we definitely had a different, um, approach to learning about history, but I do see the significance in having those experiences when I was young, because it definitely made me more curious. I think it put me on a path of discovery of myself and just history in general, And I felt like, you know, it was necessary that that pain was necessary at the time because I I need to learn the world. I needed to know what was really what really was, you know, so I can see the significance of of us keeping books that paint the truth. And if that's where the pain starts from, then hopefully they will be they will grow to understand life differently with that in mind. But avoiding concepts or you know, not making this information available to youth because of that is, I don't think that's right at all. There's ways to do it. And I feel like it's necessary. I really, you know, like when people are trying to keep you in ignorant of Mm -hmm. history, like they don't want you to understand like what slavery really was like in this country. They don't want you to know about the Holocaust and what it was really like. They don't want to teach you about what happened and continues to happen to indigenous people in this country. They don't want children to understand that, you know, maybe you aren't straight or maybe you're not cisgender and that's okay. The real motivation behind that, in my opinion, or I'm not even going to say it's my opinion. It's like, I believe strongly that when people are trying to ban those types of materials, they're telling you what types of people they don't want to be here anymore. And that might sound extreme, but, you know, like before they started, you know, killing people in Nazi Germany, like they did have book burnings and they banned things like they banned um, many years of very detailed research about transgender people. Like they got rid of that because they wanted to eliminate that knowledge. And then what came after that was eliminating people. You know, I had a teacher, I had several wonderful teachers growing up, and I had one in particular, her name was Noah Bercy. Uh, rest in peace, she's no longer here. She died way too young. But, you know, in her class, we read books about the Cambodian genocide. We read books about the Holocaust. We read Beloved. We read Olaude um, de Equiano's Slave Narrative. Uh, we read a wide variety of books from authors around the world, like throughout history. I'm, I'm, in, I'm extremely grateful and indebted to her for that foundation because there's so many people in this country that grow up and they're completely ignorant about like the true history of the U.S., about, yeah. you know, international struggles. Like they don't know because you have adults invested in them not knowing. Yeah. So, you know, like whatever you can do, like pay attention to what's happening in your local school board, pay attention to what's going on in your kids' classrooms, because it's a lot of people setting like some very unsavory, frightening agendas. 
that are going to negatively impact your children, which is going to then, you know, trickle down to everybody else. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's really a shame, especially the timing of it was also terrible, but just, you know, very disheartening news. Absolutely. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that story. Definitely very eye opening and definitely going to look into that book or into that graphic novel and, you know, just see what what I can learn from it, because there's always room to learn more. I'll definitely put a link up to the book um, so that you can, if you're interested in reading it, you can access it easily. Um, I'll also put a link to a podcast episode from uh, This American Life called Talking While Black. There's a segment of that episode that's specifically about like these campaigns to ban certain uh, books and school districts around the country that I think um, says a, a lot more about, you know, what we just discussed. So um, and you have our next song. Yes. Yeah, so um, this is a song by Bob Dylan. It's called A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Here's Bob. We'll be right back. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains. I've walked and I crawled on six crooked highways. I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain gonna fall Oh, what did you see, my blue-eyed son? And what did you see, my darling young one? I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it so highway diamonds with nobody on it I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping you can follow our social media accounts we have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our world news story. Uh, information in this uh, summary came from two different articles. One was on the BBC.com. The title is Family Who Died in Freezing Cold by the U.S.-Canada border are identified, and the author is Roxy Gadiger and Holly Honderich. And the second one was from Al Jazeera. 
the title of that article is Indian family that froze to death at Canada U.S. border are now identified. And the title was, the author was unknown for the second one. Four people, including an infant, had been found dead in freezing conditions along the United States-Canada border after apparently being abandoned by human smugglers, authorities said. Officials on Thursday said the bodies of two adults and a baby were discovered a day earlier by the U.S. border and about six miles from a town of Emerson in Canada's central Manitoba province. Police said the fourth person, who appeared to be a teenage boy, was found dead nearby shortly after. The U.S. Department of Justice has said that the four dead were tentatively identified as separated members of a group that had been detained earlier in the day while wandering in a snowy fields near the border. On Thursday, the U.S. authorities said that Florida, the Florida, a Florida man identified as Steve Shan had been charged with human smuggling in connection with this group. Shan had been stopped near the border in the U.S. state of North Dakota on Wednesday while driving in a van with two undocumented Indian nationals, authorities said. Around the same time, five other people, all undocumented Indian nationals, were spotted by law enforcement in the snow nearby. Across the border, Manitoba Assistant Commissioner Jane McLatchy told, told a news conference, this attempted cross may have been facilitated in some way by these individuals, including the infant, that were left on their own in the middle of the blizzard when the weather had hovered around minus 35 degrees Celsius, factoring in the wind. Court documents filed by U.S. authorities said among the survivors, one woman in the group will require partial amputation amputation of her hand, while another was hospitalized for frostbite but was later released. Authorities also allege that Shan has likely been involved in other border crossings, including two recent incidents in December, according to court filings. A special team led by senior counselor officer from the Consulate General of India in Toronto is camping in Manitoba to assist ongoing investigations by Canadian agencies and to render any consular services to the victim. Victims. The High Commission said the tragedy has highlighted the issues of safe and legal migration as Canada is, is a preferred destination for Indian immigrants and students. On longer-term issues that this tragedy has brought into focus is the need to ensure that migration and mobility are made safe and legal and that such tragedies do not occur. The High Commissioner said, adding that a number of ideas remain under discussion between India and Canada. Their identities were announced by Canada's High Commission of India and later confirmed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, better known as RCMP. Um, the last name of the family was Patel, and I don't have the actual names for this um, write-up because it's just a summary, um, but you can definitely find them in the articles themselves. Uh, the death of the Patel family has rocked the Indian community in Manitoba. There's a common sense of feeling guilty like something has gone wrong. Ramandeep Grual, president of the Indian Association of Manitoba, told BBC. Questions remain as to why the Patel family set out on foot in the dark in Canada's punishing winter weather. Meanwhile, six people running a travel and tourism company in the western state of Gurujat have been arrested in connection with the deaths, said police officials A.K. Jala in the state of 
Ganjagar. We are now trying to nab the human traffickers who managed to send the family and others abroad via illegal channels, he said. Anisha Batia, Director, and of General, Director General of Police in Gujarat, said investigators are trying to determine whether there was a travel agent in India who helped the group. The nexus of human trafficking runs deep, often involving local politicians too, said police official Jala, adding that people even sell their land and homes to fund their migration to the U.S. or Canada. Mr. Grual said he heard rumors that the family walked for 11 hours. You don't expose yourself to that degree of cold for 11 minutes, let alone 11 hours, he said. Such questions have consumed the Indian communities of Winnipeg, said Hamat Shah, an Indian expat who organized a virtual prayer for the Patel family this week. There are lots of Patel families here, lots of Indo-Canadians, he said. Everybody's talking, making their own theories. While perilous border crossings have become typical to the United States southern border, this type of journey is less common from the north. So that is the recap. Uh, this is an awful story. Uh, I just never even heard of anything like this as uh, far as people freezing to death. The idea that, you know, that they had to walk, I think in some of the other articles I looked at, this person, Shan, dropped them off way too far away from where he was supposed to drop them for them to be, um, to actually make it across the border. And I guess there was no cover, there was nowhere for them to go. So they just tried to make it. And it's, it's just so sad, because you know, there were people in connection, even in India, to, to make this happen. Um, and, you know, I've also read that Canada is a likely place for a lot of Indian people to migrate to. Um, not, you know, there's a huge Indian community in that part of Canada. And they're just really all shook because this is, you know, this is, could be anyone from their family. Uh, it's just really, really sad. Yeah, that's, it's horrible. I mean, it, it it's, it's kind of the same problem as you have, like, with, um, with the southern border in the U.S., like when they have a, I can't remember the exact name of the policy, but the concept is to deter people by making it so difficult that yeah, it's deadly for them to cross because, you know, so things like when you criminalize leaving out water or doing other things because you know there are people trying to cross the desert, the idea is like, well, if we make it so that there is no assistance, then that's going to stop people from coming. And that doesn't work. It just means you have more people who die, who just yeah. end up, you know, passing away in, you know, the desert wilderness because there's no water, it's too hot, they're exposed yeah. to the elements or there's animals. And this seems like, you know, they met the same fate, but just in the extreme cold. You right. know, you have people that maybe that if you're not used to cold weather and you don't really, you're not bundled up, that's a shock to your system, you know, and even if you yeah. are used to it, that's extreme cold. That's not and there just, were children, you know, something that you, you know. can, no one could make it for that long out there. Exactly. And, you know, you have some real unscrupulous people that will, as long as, you know, they get their money they'll take advantage of whoever, however, and it's, it's, it's really for a whole family to pass away. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. It's really disheartening. And, you know, just some of the reports were just saying like, you know, as much as this has rocked the Indian community, they really hope that others who are thinking of taking this trek will think twice 
you know, about this, this level of desperation and maybe reach out to others in the community there so that they would at least, you know, have some sort of backup, somebody, you know, that knows what's happening or can assist if they are stuck, you know, I mean, I guess there's really like no someone right way that to would this. be aware that they haven't yes. heard from the person they haven't. Exactly. So, you know, someone within that Indian community that's in Canada, because this is a normal journey for a lot of families. And, you know, by having that strong community, maybe there could be some level of help that could have been provided or someone to look out for them. But yeah, it's just a really, really sad story. And we hear it all the time about the southern border that doesn't make it okay. But you know, it must have been a horrible situation if they were willing to risk everything. And that is really, really sad and tragic. Yeah, it's like these, you know, when migration isn't safe, it doesn't stop migration. It just makes it dangerous. You know, like all it ensures is that the people that attempt it are more likely to die. So even the idea that, oh, like, well, if, you know, some people are of the mindset that like, well, if they know that people are dying, freezing to death, or if they know that people are starving to death, or they're dying of heat stroke, then that's going to keep them from coming. And it doesn't happen. It's just you just have more people who end up severely injured or who pass away because the motives for them having to move are so strong, that it's worth the risk to them. And it's, you know, I, I, I wish that this I'm not really so sure how much of it seems like it was a matter of like Canada's border policies as much as it was this person that was trying to traffic them so I I don't want to say too much on you know if there was a I don't know like how hard or how easy it would have been for them to have come a different way I don't know um well I'm taking it that this was a likely route taken by others but this man you know that they're saying was in connection to other uh, incidents that happened in December apparently is a part of a larger network that you right. know, connects back to India and it's just very sad that people out here are smuggling people knowing that they're not going to make it it's just right uh-huh. yeah because that's also that can also be an access issue too you know like there's a difference between being someone who is say like an educated professional that wants to go to another country who might have the means and the knowledge of how to do that in the safest way versus somebody that is not in that position and they're desperate, they might not have a way to know or to figure out like what's the safest, best way to do it. So they can be like easy prey for someone that just wants to take advantage of them, you know, and the way things are going in the world it's like anywhere you look there's going to be some population of people that are just really really desperate and in a bad way and you know these unscrupulous people can just come on in and convince them of whatever and then they're out they're stranded somewhere yeah my heart goes out to their family and the Indian community in Canada and in India you know it's just such a tragic story but um Shit like this happens every day, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very sad. All right, y'all. So I'm going to try to brighten it up with a little bit of good news. Um, And this is a cute little story. I thought it was cute. Um, It is from a website called theweek.com, and they have good news stories listed there. Um, 
the title of this one is 11 year old who won mullet competition donates prize money to foster kids. Alan Botts and his mullet are making a difference. Alan 11 and his twin sister Alice were in foster care in Jonesboro, Arkansas before being adopted in 2015. The kids have the biggest hearts, their mom, Leslie Baltz, told KATV, and never forgot what it was like to be fostered. At the start of the pandemic, the family had fun trying out crazy hairstyles with Alan embracing the mullet. A friend told them about a USA mullet championship, and Leslie said as soon as Alan learned there was a $2,500 prize, he instantly said, oh, I can do it and give the money to kids in foster care. Late last year, Alan won the kids' division in the in a landslide and split the prize money between two Arkansas nonprofits. Uh, Together We Foster and Project Zero. He said, when I was in foster care, I knew how it felt, and I'm pretty sure they feel the same way. So I'm just going to, I'm really hoping they get a family, Alan told KATV. I haven't heard of a kid with a mullet, or I haven't (laughs) seen one with a mullet. I don't know ever in in real life and maybe in a picture somewhere, but wow. That's what I was thinking. I was like, wow, who would have thought of that? But, you know, his heart is so big to donate his winnings. And I just thought that was a cute little story. All right, y'all. So we have made it to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day, Joy, and it's by Andy Grammer. Have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye. Happy Sunday, everybody. Me and Fear, we had a thing in 1993. Told me I was wasting time with all these silly dreams. I dated out, she knocked me down every time I tried. But I found joy in my life Sorrow swept me off my feet in 2009 I took long walks on the beach next to the oceans that we cried And grief she came and overstayed way longer than I'd like But I found joy in my life If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.